This is episode 5-7 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Chris Weber, and I'm also clever, and this is Free as in Freedom, and my guests today are... Karen Karen Sandler. Yeah, Karen Sandler, and... Bradley Kuhn. Bradley Kuhn. And here... (laughs) We are, uh, this time, I, the tables have turned, uh, not literally, it's still in this position, <laughs> but I am here to interview you two instead of you doing the interview in the reverse direction. And since this is what happens at the beginning of interviews, I need you two to introduce yourself within the context of uh, what do you, who are you and what do you do? I'm Karen Sandler. I'm executive director of the Software Freedom Conservancy. I am a cyborg lawyer. Excellent. And you are? I'm Bradley Kuhn. I'm the Distinguished Technologist at the Software Freedom Conservancy, and uh, I enforce the GPL, among other things. Well, thanks for coming on my show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I wanted to ask you about this campaign that I hear you that you're launching. Uh, it has something to do with the GPL, uh, the Linux kernel, and, uh, and maybe something about getting membership involved. Is something could, what is this thing? Could you tell me about it? Yeah, as as listeners of your show may know, (laughs) uh, Conservancy is involved in representing uh, copyright holders in the Linux kernel and enforcing their copyrights uh, with companies that have been violating the GPL. And we do so in a very polite and uh, deliberate fashion and do our best to achieve compliance. But when it fails, you have to be ready to bring a lawsuit or you can't even take the initial step in asking for compliance um, because it, 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 it breaks down. If you're not willing to bring a lawsuit ultimately, then you may as well not start at all. And, and, and the effect of that is that your, um, your choice of using the GPL is completely ineffective because it is effectively like having a permissive license. Hmm. I think a lot of people really don't understand that point that Karen just made, so I'm going to also make it in a different way because it's such an important point. The GPL is not magic pixie dust. It does not work by itself. I think it's a wonderful thing when a developer chooses to GPL their work, but I've met so many developers for the last 20 years who will say things like, I chose the GPL so I know that my software will remain forever free. It's just sadly not true. That's only the first step. The first step is to choose a copyleft license for your code. The next step is when someone fails to follow that copyleft license, it must be enforced. And that it's a simple fact of our modern society that such type of work is incredibly expensive to do and incredibly difficult to do. It wasn't so difficult maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because generally speaking, any company that was adopting GPL software was either fell into one of two camps. One, they were excited about getting involved in the copyleft projects and were happy to contribute upstream. We had many, many of those. Cygnus would be the most wonderful example of that, a company that Red Hat ultimately acquired that started as a support model for GCC and were happy to comply with the GPL. Then there were the other types of companies that had an employee who put GPL stuff into their product and didn't really explain it to management and then they had to fix it. And in my experience in the long go past, those companies, once they were explained the issues, were happy to comply with the GPL. Mm-hmm. Sadly today, we're in a world where there was a third type of GPL violator. 
There are GPL violators who are refusing to comply and they are testing the edges of what the GPL can do. They are in fact not testing even that close of an edges. Uh, they've effectively turned the license of Linux from the GPL into the LGPL by merely ignoring the GPL and pretending as if it were the LGPL. Yeah, or worse, a lot of these companies would be violating the LGPL too. True enough, but um, I, th I, th I think the, the, the most, uh, the, 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 often those are the ones that are like the, the second group I mentioned. They, they just don't right. understand fully, and, and once explained, they come into compliance, and there's still many of those around. That's true. And worse still, despite the fact that when we do our uh, enforcement work, despite the fact that we are as nice and polite and as patient as possible, in a VMware lawsuit, we worked on it for four years. Despite that fact, before the lawsuit, to be clear, before, before the lawsuit, before we worked for the four lawsuit years. was lawsuit was even filed, there were four years of working hard and nicely to try to get resolution. And despite the fact that I can't think of a more reasonable and kind way to bring about the right result, the fact that we as an organization have brought a lawsuit to enforce the GPL has had negative influence or, or negative impact on our ability to fundraise from some companies who perceive compliance to be uh, an undesirable or dangerous activity, no matter how we conducted it, even though we've conducted this work in the friendliest and most constructive of all possible ways. So, so that actually ties in great to my, uh, my, my next question, which is uh, why this case particularly, right? There's, you know, you, you work on copyleft enforcement generally, but uh, is there something particular about this case that, that testing the edges that, that we hope, um, is it just this case, or is there, is there more at stake than just this particular uh, license violation? This is indeed a first step uh, towards resolving the great problem of Linux GPL violations. I believe we will have to continue on and do more work. We want to continue on and do more work. This case will just be the beginning of that, and it is perhaps the most egregious situation that I've encountered of someone refusing to comply with the GPL up until this point in my career. Uh, but I'm already seeing other ones that are even more egregious that I didn't know about when we started doing VMware. We have a lot of work to do. We chose this case in this way in part because uh, I have to be, I have to give credit here to our colleague Christoph Helwig, who was brave enough to bring this lawsuit because he too has had a lot of pressure put in on him um, and unfriendliness about his willingness to bring the case. Ultimately, we need brave copyright holders who will step forward. I should mention in that context that anyone who's a copyright holder in Linux can contact us and join our coalition of Linux copyright holders who enforce with us. We have an internal mailing list. We do it is a uh, collaborative project and we would love for anyone who holds copyright in the kernel name Linux to join that effort. And to, um, to sort of uh, underscore one of the points that Bradley ha has made, um, I, you know, I, I think that each company in their legal department goes through their own analysis of where they think the lines are in the derivative works analysis. And those lawyers have a tremendous amount of pressure from the business units of the companies to come up with a certain solution and what they think is an adequate legal defense or conclusion. It's a very expensive process that every company does for themselves. And by bringing a lawsuit 
or you know, taking the first step in finding out the way that this will be interpreted by courts is actually something that reduces friction in the entire space and is good for every company because every company goes through this analysis independently and over and over again. It's, a, it's confusing, it's a big drag on the system, and it, it doesn't make any sense. Great. Um, so I think, so, so for me, uh, so say if somebody listening to this episode, maybe they haven't thought before about why copyleft enforcement is important to them, right? Why should I care? You know, like, I mean, honestly, if there's a company that's, they've taken a, a bit of copyleft code and they've added a little bit of proprietary, you know, stuff on top, what, why should this be a big deal to me? Why does this affect me um, as somebody who cares about free software? The most interesting stuff will be the stuff they keep proprietary. The stuff you need the source code to the most will be the stuff they keep proprietary. Look at the situation with regard to Linux. Quite frequently, the source code that you get in these GPL violation situations that we're talking about that are combined work style violations, you get all the source code to the to parts of Linux that came from upstream, which you could have gotten from kernel.org in the first place. The parts where the source code isn't disclosed are, the, d disclosed are the parts that are the new things they've added, the new device driver for the new exciting device, uh, the new special type of interfaces they've built uh, to talk to their, their specialized hardware or something like that. In all of these cases, the new interesting code is what they try to keep proprietary. And that's exactly what the GPL was designed to prevent. It was designed to prevent for-profit companies from taking copyleft code developed by a community of developers and adding on proprietary stuff to it. While I, I don't like proprietary software, I avoid it, and I think it's bad for our society, it's fine for companies to write proprietary software, but don't use free and open, so don't use GPL software, don't use copylefted software as your base. If you want to write proprietary software, write proprietary software don't use the code that developers have written in an ideological fashion and have have licensed under a sharing license and then keep it closed. The VMware case is a wonderful example of this problem. VMware had a bare bones kernel that didn't do very much. In particular, it didn't have a SCSI subsystem. Instead of writing their own SCSI subsystem, which they have every right in the world they to They have 14,000 employees, I might add. <laughs> and they have every right in the world to take any subset of those 14,000 employees and then sign them the job of writing a SCSI subsystem for their kernel. They didn't do that. They took the one Christoph wrote, ported it over to their kernel, and distributed the whole result of a mix of proprietary and GPL code into one application, one program. That's exactly what the GPL prohibits. Well, so, I mean, I'm asking questions as if we haven't had these conversations, <laughs> but, you know, but actually I, I can't help but get into where this has affected me, you know, as well, right? You know, we've actually had quite a bit of conversations about, you know, this, like, despite there's a massive amount of anti-copyleft rhetoric out there right now, right? And yet it's a really bad situation right now where the, the things we really need are the things that seem to be being locked down, right? We've got probably more free software than ever before, and yet our society is getting super locked down. But at this conference, we've 
you know, at this conference alone, we've been seeing kind of the marketing on anti-copity left, you know, turned up to the max, right? We're at OSCON. We never said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we're, do, we're doing this interview, which you'll hear much later um, in, our, in our usual time travel way. I suddenly became a host again. Sorry about that. Um, um, at OSCON 2015, where in fact there was a talk that was uh, ragingly anti-copy left, uh, given by uh, Shane of the, uh, is it Sean or Shane? From the Apache, Shane. Shane from the uh, Apache Software Foundation. And I'm not surprised that this rhetoric um, is reaching a crescendo again. It doesn't surprise me in the least because uh, w w once we've started at Software Freedom Conservancy more fully and completely enforcing the GPL on, I would argue, the most important GPL program ever written, which is Linux, uh, that is going to cause all quarters to rise in attack against copyleft. And, and I'm sorry to use those kinds of rhetoric words like attack, but, but that's what it is. We have all sorts of entities, trade associations, for-profit companies attacking us. Even uh, for, some charities. For, for, <laughs> and, and Apache Software Nation, which is a charity, uh, a fellow charity, is, is attack, are attacking us for having copyleft and enforcing copyleft. And having it be effective. Copyleft be effective, basically, is the but, big threat, right? Indeed, when copyleft's in it, as we said, when copy, because it's not magic pixie dust, if it's, in, if it's ineffective, if it's not actually enforced, no one was really upset when, when, when in some sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a success thing. Conservancy is being successful in enforcing the GPL, that's the real danger. Being unsuccessful in enforcing the GPL is no threat at all to those who want to proprietarize. Right, right. But I mean, actually, I think that in a certain sense, uh, I mean, I'm very tired of hearing all the anti-copyleft rhetoric, but I actually think that we're starting to see that people are, are getting tired about this, right? Like, like the, the, I've seen quite a bit of response to people who were not happy about you know, that, that talk that was given, et cetera. Oh yeah, there's been this amazing, I mean, at least here, I guess, uh, from people hearing this anti-copyleft rhetoric, uh, there are a lot of people came over to the Conservancy booth and said, why aren't we hearing more about the GPL and copyleft because it seems not represented here, and boy, this is important. And a lot of, especially very young developers that came over to the booth were saying this is crazy because copyleft is so important. Right. Of course, there's problems of who controls the microphone in that. When, when people ask that, the answer, uh, I actually didn't get asked that in the booth myself, uh, the answer I would give is that, is that I had to struggle to be able to give a talk on copyleft at OSCON 2015. Right. Uh, in fact, my talk was, was rejected uh, or left in the under review forever state, which is a, a way of, I guess, neither rejecting nor accepting, but it's ultimately rejection. I believe, Karen, your talk was still under review when the conference I'm, ended. I'm still waitlisted now. <laughs> still waitlisted as, as the I'm waiting. As the conference <laughs> ends, uh, it will still be waitlisted. The only way I got off that, that waitlist and got into one of the few remaining slots on the, on the, you know, the, the final day uh, was by lobbying to get in. And it turns out that, uh, that there were key people in the community who were actively blocking and there reason for blocking my talk was attendees at OSCON don't care about copyleft. They aren't interested in hearing about copyleft. So there's a lot of, it's, it's not, I, I, I don't which want is, to Which is not true. It's that it's what, it's what this group of people wants to be true. And by influencing what gets said, it means that there's not even the conversation. The newcomers don't even know that there is this issue. We'll never hear about copyleft. And this is true of a lot of the conferences that are in free and open source software. The microphone is controlled by people with an agenda. But particularly those controlled by for-profit companies and trade associations. Trade associations. Wait, which comes to the part where I have to address 
what I'm pretty sure is, is the agenda of conservancy. We all know that the real purpose of this here is that you're, you're doing this GPL enforcement because you're going after that sweet GPL enforcement cash, right? This is, a, <laughs> this is, a, this is the conservancy's number one way to, to pull in the GPL cash, right? There's if only, if only, every comp every compliance matter that every enforcement matter that we take on is is a is a losing is money loss for us. It's expensive to do, and when you do it in an ethical community way, as we have really strived to do, you put compliance before anything else, which means that we will never ask for money until we will never take money until compliance is is absolutely achieved which puts us in a situation where it takes a very long time, it takes a tremendous amount of work, and at the end of the day, we're asking for just our costs reimbursed, which we won't recover for every single matter that we do. So enforcement is expensive, and it's very hard to recoup those costs. And, and certainly we're never, going to ref we're never going to fight someone for the money if they've come into compliance. And so there, we've had many cases in the Software Freedom Conservancy where we did enforcement, spent a tremendous number of hours, we brought the product into compliance, and we sent them a bill for our time, and they never paid it. And then there was nothing that could be done because we felt that it wasn't right to demand the money uh, when and they we were in compliance. Right, and we also didn't feel like it was right to shame anyone who is now in compliance. Correct. And so, and so even in litigation, we should be clear, the, the lawyers are expensive. Uh, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is they are. Uh, and especially litigation counsel, people who go into court for you as opposed to other types of lawyers. In the UK, they actually have a distinction between a barrister and solicitor. Um, and we would be talking about barristers uh, if there was a distinction in the US. They're called litigators in the US and they're very expensive attorneys. <laughs> and so we have to get the best because this is the greatest fight uh, for the future of software freedom. So we can't do anything but but hire the best lawyers we can find uh, and pay them. And so th th that's why we had to launch a huge fundraising campaign for the VMware lawsuit, which we were so grateful that people responded positively and to. And we'll be lucky if the amount we raise covers the lawsuit. In fact, we've already spent a large percentage of that money we already raised. As you hear this, uh, a large percentage is already gone of what we raised just back in March to pay the legal fees of just the first few steps in that VMware lawsuit. And we're very concerned at this point that we won't be able to continue enforcement. We've put money aside for VMware so that we know we can finish that case because it's absolutely essential. Now that we've started, we must finish that case to the end. But it also means we have to lock up funds on the side that we know are there to finish that case. And meanwhile, how do we continue our existing enforcement work? Right. We're, we're trying to answer that question as an organization. So as we stand right now, enforcement is financially untenable without help. It's hurting our ability to raise funds from, uh, from for-profit companies and trade associations. And therefore, we are at the point where we have to turn to the public because we are a public charity. And if the work that we are doing is valuable to you as a public, it means that you need to spend your money to support it. And if we, well, if we don't raise that money, then we need to really rethink what we're doing. So, so that... So it seems like we're entering a moment for conservancy then, basically, right? This, you guys are talking about raising a membership base. Why is it so important to, to go to, you've, you two have both, you both have said plenty to me that you want to go towards a member-driven organization, but what does that mean and why does it matter right now, right? What's so special about this moment where a member-driven organization is where we need to be? Despite the fact that enforcement is in the benefit of corporate interests, it's in the medium to long-term benefit 
for all companies in our ecosystem. And it is in the short-term interest of many companies in our ecosystem. But because it is perceived as controversial, it means that our short-term ability to raise funds while we're bringing lawsuits is severely impaired. And that means that we, are, we operate under a financial gap. And it means that pursuing what is right hurts us financially. We are a charity. We're a public charity. Our listeners have heard us talk about this many times, the differences between... You mean Chris's listeners? The differences between a charity and a trade association, and this is where it's all brought home. A public charity serves the public. It serves you. And we need to do things that are in the public interest, not in companies' interest. And while what we do is in companies' interests, it's difficult to get many companies to see this in the short term, and so our funding has been hit. And we need, we need people to vote for the GPL. We need people to say, the GPL is something I care about, and I'm going to vote not by going to a voting booth, because there's no voting booth you can go to to vote for the GPL, but you can vote, frankly, with your dollars. By giving conservancy funds to continue its work enforcing the GPL, you are assuring that the GPL is enforced. I, I keep saying, I believe fundamentally Linux is the most important GPL program. The reason I say that, and I'm, I'm on the board of directors of the FSF as well, I care about the FSF programs, uh, but at this point, Linux is the one program that companies have said, we will fight the GPL battle over rather than rewrite. You look at something like GCC, which I care deeply about GCC and its future, but for-profit companies uh, that are not friendly to free software are funding LLVM to get rid of GCC, to get it out of their lives. And they're succeeding, because LLVM technologically is actually much better than GCC. It's, it's just leapfrogged. That's just a fact, technological fact of the matter. With Linux, no one has taken on to rewrite a kernel from scratch. Even VMware, who had a kernel they started writing from scratch, gave up and ripped off a bunch of code from Linux. So for that reason, the, the battle of GPL, as history turned out, is going to be fought over Linux, and Conservancy is the only charity fighting for the GPL on Linux. Conservancy has become the charity that is the conscience of free and open source software. We're tackling the urgent issues that are, um, that are ethical, that others can address, that a trade association will never address. We have enforcement, which is very important, and also where the organization doing uh, very serious work through outreach on diversity. These are issues that are things that are right they are part, they're charitable, um, they're charitable purposes and that we are tackling. And they're things that we need public support for. We need a membership, a vibrant supporter membership. So, so let, me, let me get this straight. The, we're, we're in the moment where conservancy is taking the long-term vision of where free software needs to be. The social justice direction of free software, right? As in terms of, you know, diversity, as in terms of, you know, copyleft enforcement, as in terms of things that really matter in the long term, but are really hard to actually just, you know, get organizations to fund where we need people to fund, right? Is this right? And so we, so it sounds like I'm getting fired up. I'm getting fired up <laughs> in the moment. I want, I want to help, right? You know, I want to help. I want to see the long-term direction of free software to go where, you know, free software remains free, where everyone's able to participate, where these things that are difficult to do in this very moment where it feels like you're going against the grain, where there's an organization that's standing up and doing it anyway, even though it's a pain in the butt sometimes. So how do I help? How do I help Conservancy make this dream come true? 
You know, you could host a show to explain that to people. Oh yeah, <laughs> but and you can and as I, as we said, you can vote with your dollars. You can vote for GPL. And if we could build a supporter base by going to sfconservancy.org/supporter and become a supporter for $120 a year, it's $10 a month. If you work in the technology industry, you probably spend more on a lunch once per month than $10. Just eat that lunch at home or bring it from home once per month and you'll get that $10 back and you can give it to the Conservancy for us to do this work. If we could build a supporter base that's large, we would have a, not only the funding we need to continue the work we're doing for copyleft enforcement and software freedom and outreach to underrepresented groups in open source and free software, but also we have a mandate. A mandate that tells me and Karen and Tony and Denver, our four folks who work with us, that there is a public out there who wants us to do this work, who's willing to put $10 a month towards us succeeding in fighting for copyleft, fighting for a diverse community. And once you've given money, <laughs> you should write a blog post explaining or a microblog saying why you did it. Um, why you think it's important and encouraging your friends to become supporters too. And if you can't afford to become a supporter because you're a student or, um, or for, uh, it's financially difficult for some reason, we understand, we've been there um, and it's tough. Uh, but amplifying this message and explaining to people why you care about copyleft and why you care about conservancy will go a very long way towards helping us. All right. Well, thank you too. Uh, so it sounds like, sounds like, me personally, I'm so glad to have had both you on my show. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Karen and Bradley. And to, to to close this up, I know I personally have gotten fired up about all this. Um, the it seems like the time is now. The the there's no other moment. We can't let the GPL be put on ice. You know, like somebody's got to stand up to do it. Somebody's got to show that it's actually financially viable for somebody to just be able to do this work, right? So uh, let's all stand up for the GPL, support Conservancy. Thanks for listening. sfconservancy.org slash supporter. Please visit and donate now. This episode of Free as in Freedom is produced by Mike Tarantino, filling in for Dan Lynch of podfactory.org. Theme music is by Mike Tarantino, and thanks to Charlie Paxson on drums. Thank you.